there's something different about this. There's something different about this night. It's not that it's unusual for us to gather in the evening, but this night feels different. This night looks different. Everything that's added to our worship space tonight is added to cover and to conceal and to darken rather than to reveal or to highlight. There's something different about this service. We've gathered in silence. We've waited and we've watched. And there will continue to be opportunities for for quiet reflection. And the candles have been set out front and they speak to us silently and symbolically. There's something different about this night and there's something different about this service because there is something different about this man. There's something different about this Savior. When his final steps took him before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor noticed that there was something different about Jesus. How many trials had Pilate overseen? How many times had an accused man stood in front of him? How many times did that accused person act as Jesus did? Here's the answer. The governor was very surprised. Accusations were hurled at Jesus. The testimony was was damning. It was brutal, but it was all made up. It was all false. And Jesus stood there quietly. I've been accused at times. I've heard charges and complaints, and as often as, as not, they've been true. I've been guilty as charged. And I'm not talking about legal proceedings. I'm talking about moral culpability. I'm talking about the times that I have failed to live up to God's standards, to live up to loving someone else. And when those accusations came, I spoke up immediately. I got defensive. I pushed back, I fought, I insisted on my innocence, my reputation, my character. But there's something different about Jesus. He is innocent of every charge that is brought against him. He is the most innocent person to have ever stood in front of Pontius Pilate. And yet he does not say a word. The only time Jesus speaks is when he is asked directly, Are you the king of the Jews? And then he freely admits that he is. His final steps will certainly bear out this truth. There is something different about him. Early in the morning, 
all the chief priests and the elders of the people reached the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor. When Jesus stood in the presence of the governor, the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Don't you hear how many things they are testifying against you? But he did not answer, not even one word, so that the governor was very surprised. It is unclear whether Jesus' final steps actually took him to Barabbas. Did the two ever stand face to face? Did they share a stage or a room or a cell? It is clear that Jesus remained for a time with Pontius Pilate. The Roman governor had the authority that the leaders of Jesus' own people, the Jews, did not have. He could demand an execution. Pontius Pilate held in his hands the power of life and death, at least from an earthly perspective. No matter the exact logistics, Barnabas, or excuse me, Barabbas, was there too with Pilate. He was a prisoner, notorious infamous, guilty. It's clear that Pilate knew the situation precisely. He knew that in his hands were two prisoners. One was guilty and one was innocent. Even the wife of Pilate knew that Jesus was righteous and ought to be set free. But Pilate wasn't going to make that decision. His wife was not going to make the decision. The crowd was going to make the decision. Pilate, wanting to placate the Jewish crowd, offered to do as tradition demanded. He would celebrate their Passover, their holiday, by releasing a prisoner. How many times this had happened before? How many years this tradition had gone on? I do not know. How many times had Pilate released to the Jews some zealot who may have been a threat to Rome, but he was no threat to the Jewish people? And so they were glad to receive that prisoner back. But in this case, when they had made their decision... A guilty man was set free, and an innocent man faced judgment. But take a moment to consider not just the earthly perspective, but also the heavenly perspective. 
God had sent His own Son to stand in stark contrast to a world of sinners. God held in His hand a guilty race, all of humanity. And He also held in His hand an innocent man. One who had placed himself under God's law and under the laws of human beings. And God used the wicked decision of the crowd to accomplish his own goals and his own purposes. And so a guilty world was set free, and an innocent man faced judgment. At the time of the festival, the governor had a custom to release to the crowd any one prisoner they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they were assembled, Pilate said to them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For Pilate knew that they had handed Jesus over to him because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent him a message. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, she said, since I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus put to death. The governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they said. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Crucify him. But the governor said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting even louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, and that instead it was turning into a riot, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. It is your responsibility. Then all the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over the Gentiles to mock, flog, and crucify him. On the third day, he will be raised. Those were Jesus' own words. He warned his disciples that this was how his final trip to Jerusalem was going to turn out. And now everything that he said to them was coming true. Pilate's soldiers would now heap abuse on him. Oh, you're the king of the Jews. Well, then we will treat you like a king. A king wears a royal robe. A king wears a crown. A king carries a scepter. A king receives respect and honor from his subjects. And so a makeshift robe 
would settle on the bloodied skin of Jesus. A thorny crown would be pressed into his head. He could hold a staff till the soldiers decided to take it from him and strike him with it. And they would offer their respects in gobs of saliva. Some king. But do not be deceived. When this king's followers fought back to prevent him from being arrested in the first place, here's what he said. Put your sword back in its place. Because all who take the sword will die by the sword. Do you not realize that I could call on my father and at once he would provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Without any angels... And by his own power, Jesus could have ended this mockery of justice at any time. He could have prevented his arrest. He could have stopped his condemnation, his scourging, his mocking. But he endured. Because he wanted you as his subject. He wanted you who by your sins have heaped abuse on him and mocked his royal power just as much as these soldiers were doing. Jesus wanted to make it clear that his kingdom was not of this world and that no one and nothing could move him from the path that he had determined to take. And so his final steps led him to the soldiers at the praetorium and beyond. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, knelt in front of him, and mocked him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him, took the staff, and hit him repeatedly on his head. Now we have come to his final steps. The preparations are complete. The cross is ready. Simon will carry it when Jesus cannot. But the cross and the crucified will both come to the place of the skull. This hill just outside of Jerusalem may have indeed looked something like a skull. No doubt it had seen its share of crucifixions. The condemned was nailed to the wood, and the cross was set in place. The torture and execution were put on full display. The Passover pilgrims could walk past and see once again that Rome was in charge. 
if you tried to usurp their power, if you claimed royal authority, here's what would happen to you. Your claim would be nailed on a sign above your head while you slowly died in front of every passerby. But remember, this crucifixion was different. When in any other crucifixion had everyone joined in mocking this one? When had even the criminals turned against one man who was suffering the same fate that they were? Could we find clearer testimony that God had laid on him the sin of us all. In our best moments, we look on this scene with horror. We say, rightly, it should have been me suffering. In our best moments, we, we bow our heads and whisper a quiet prayer of thanks. But it's not all our best moments, is it? In our worst moments, and there have been far too many of them, we join right in. Is that all you have? Don't you care about what's happening to me right now? Why are you leaving me with all these questions and all these doubts? Why don't you prove that you are the king and you are powerful and you are worthy of worship? Why don't you, Jesus, be the king that I think I need? Well, Jesus does even better than that. He stays on the cross. And he is exactly the king that you need. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out of the city, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry Jesus' cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. After they had crucified him, they divided his clothing amongst themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down and were keeping watch over him there. Above his head, they posted the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At the same time, two criminals were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. People who passed by kept insulting him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, experts in the law and elders kept mocking him. They said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. 
Let God rescue him now if he wants him, because he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him kept insulting him. Nails, thorns, whips, scourging, a heavy wooden cross with all its splinters. This whole process was designed to inflict as much torture as possible, maximum pain, maximum suffering, not to mention shame and disgrace. We can hardly imagine what it must have felt like, what such an experience could possibly entail. We could try. We could think of the times we've been pierced by thorns, where we've struggled with an inconvenient splinter, when we've been cut, when we've bled. We can try to think about our pain and multiply it many times over to think about what Jesus might have suffered on the cross and then he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that we cannot comprehend this. Even in our darkest times, even in our most painful hour, God is still with us. For agonizing moments, around three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus was forsaken. The gracious presence of His heavenly Father was taken away from Him. The true and essential definition of hell became a reality for Jesus as he hung on the cross. And everything that we deserved for our sins, everything that the world deserved for our sins, came crashing down on the one who had no sin, but had become sin for us. God was forsaken by God, so that you and I might never be forsaken. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, this fellow is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, took a sponge, and soaked it with sour wine. Then he put it on a stick and gave him, gave him a drink. The rest said, leave him alone. 
Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. It is a final step that we all share. We've shared it with the entire human race ever since sin ripped apart the relationship between a perfect God and the people he had created. Separation. Death. God and people were separated, and as a result, and as a consequence, human bodies and souls would be separated. We would not live forever. In fact, without God stepping in, we would die forever. The separation between people and God would last for eternity. So God stepped in. God stepped in with a promise. He promised a savior. He promised the head crusher of the serpent who had tempted people. But even in his promise, he gave a warning. He shared the fact that this Savior, too, would be struck, would be wounded. We have seen his wounds tonight. And now we watch and we remember as our final step becomes his final step. His true human body is separated from his true human soul. And in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ, God himself dies for his people. And even the rocks and the tombs felt what had happened and testified to what had happened. So also the people who were standing closest to all of it and seeing everything. After Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Suddenly the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks were split. Tombs were opened and many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised to life. Those who came out of the tombs went into the holy city after Jesus' resurrection and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus with him saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Dead means dead. Jesus was not unconscious. He wasn't waiting to be resuscitated. The soldiers knew it. Pilate knew it. Joseph of Arimathea knew it. The women who were watching in sorrow knew it. 
by God's amazing grace, you know it, and I know it. You also know that Jesus has the power over death. The fact that you are aware is evidence that he has given you spiritual life where only spiritual death existed before. Jesus does that. He gives life where there is death. And that is why you and I can both mourn this night over our sins in incredible sorrow and also call today good. It's why we can leave in the silence in which we arrived tonight and also have thankfulness in our hearts. It's why it is worth our while to think and to meditate and to process the suffering and the pain and the sadness. We can watch as someone else carries the body of Jesus to the tomb because his final steps are behind him. And we can wipe away our tears knowing that we will revisit this tomb again soon. And everything will be different. There is indeed something different about this night. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and who had served him were there, watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb that he had cut in the rock. He rolled a large stone over the tomb's entrance and left. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. 